Hello, and welcome to Quiet Visionaries. I'm Jake Hoban from True Mind Consulting. I'm fascinated by how systems and organizations work. And in this podcast, I'll be talking to people who are working behind the scenes to help businesses do the right things instead of doing the wrong things right. So my guest on the show today is Gary Monty. Gary's based out of Dublin, Ohio. He's a change management consultant from the Center for Managing Change. Gary, welcome and thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Jake. Uh, any chance to talk about change management? You know, I just, I'm in hog heaven. It's uh, <laughs> it's in my blood. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. So I owe you a special thanks because this is actually the first ever episode of the podcast. So oh my God, I'm, I'm no pressure, but I'm grateful to you for helping me to get started. And uh, we've spoken before, so I know we're going to have a good conversation. I thought you'd be a really great fit, actually, to to get the show on the road, so to speak, because the idea for this podcast, which I'm calling Quiet Visionaries, is people who are kind of plugging away a little bit behind the scenes to change the way that organizations work, to maybe unloosen some of the habits of thought that we've got into. And you just strike me as that kind of person. I guess partly partly based on what I can see of your personality. And I know you have a a thing for personality types. I'll let you talk about that yourself. And partly I think you definitely have a vision. You, You definitely have an idea for how organizations can work maybe more effectively and also more for the good. That's correct. Now, my ex-wives would call that being hard-headed. You're kind enough to call it vision. Um, But no, you're correct. And the working behind the scenes, it taps into the psychological component because um, uh, I'm a big believer in Carl Jung's depth psychology. And depth psychology is all about behind the scenes who are the puppet masters inside us that are actually pulling the strings. In fact, with my clients, the metaphor I give them is uh, life is like a double decker bus. And our conscious self is like a, a toddler up on the top deck and it's in its car seat and it's got one of those Fisher price wheels and horns and all that. And so the toddler thinks it's driving the bus. Meanwhile, shadows down actually in the driver's seat. And it's pretty much calling, it's calling the game the whole time. So the behind the scenes component is critical in that I spend a fair amount of time uh, nurturing clients to go through the fear of looking at their shadow. And that's, you know, the, the first 90% of my engagements are technical but the second 90% of my engagements are psychological psychological and political. And um, I, just briefly, as far as introducing myself, I started out back in the 80s, and it was all technical. In fact, I started out doing Primavera on local area networks. That was the big thing that came out, local area networks. You know, get away from the mainframe. But what happened was over time, Uh, When I looked at the problems we had with the technology, it actually turned out all the problems were political. 
So over time, this was over a period of 10 or 15 years, I migrated towards the behind the scenes aspect. And now the first most important thing I do is the politics. As I was, uh, I was in a group last week or two weeks ago, and people were talking about how do you deal with highly complex situations and people were, you know, systems analysis and all these fancy algorithms. And I said, well, I just do a fear map. If I can do a fear map of the stakeholders involved in a situation, just tell me what the goals are and I'll tell you what, you, what you're actually going to accomplish. So that behind the scenes component, it's the lifeblood of how I work. And it tends to be how I am personally, that I, I'd like to know who you are, what you're about. I'll show who I am and what I'm about. And then from there, we can see how much that we can accomplish. And we can lock arms and create abundance when we risk uh, being emotionally honest. I'll put a period on that. Yeah, thanks. So how do you sell that kind of thing? Because, you know, people people have things they want to get done. Every organization has a project and they have some deliverables and they have a budget and they have a deadline and they have some people jumping up and down. And you say to them, well, I'm going to, I'm going to look at your deepest feelings. I'm going to, I'm going to make you put your fear on the table and confront it. I mean, <laughs> who wants that, right? Who's, who's buying? Not many people. Uh, I've been doing this for 40 years and uh, it's been a difficult sale from day one in that most people are looking for the closed system that defines their fears. They want to stay inside that and find a solution. And um, if I did like a lot of large consulting firms do and promise the sky based on um, telling the, the CEO he's the greatest thing since sliced bread and he's a victim of all the poor performance of these mushrooms of employees. If I use that approach, I'd have more clients than I know what to do with. But my approach is let's view those employees as mirrors. What do you see? And <laughs> that does not go over very well. Well, when I go to parties, I tell people my clients they're in a situation where things are so bad, they're going to consider honesty. And I know that sounds sarcastic and dark. It can be, but actually it is the, it's the God's honest truth. Things are so bad. They're going to consider honesty so that I'm usually somewhere between the third and fifth consulting group that they brought on because they try to, they try to do all these external, uh, you know, you know, it's like uh, couples therapy. Uh, the wife can do the inventory of the husband and the husband can do the inventory of the wife. But when the therapist asks each of them to do their own inventory, they go blank. Um, uh, and that's another thing. I just gave a personal metaphor. I practice Buddhism. It's a practice. I, I'm not interested in religion. And if your listeners are, that's fine. I, I just am not. And what I find is the more a client strives for continuity across their life based on compassion, treating people as equals and negotiating in a healthy way, then the greater the odds that they can lock arms with other people and create more abundance. When clients wake up to that, they're shocked. 
they're very pleasantly shocked. They can't believe how much they can accomplish when they do that. So that's in a nutshell. And I'm technically expert in certain areas. And if I'm not, then I bring in associates. I used to have employees, but what I found is this morphs so much on the surface. At the core, it's the same thing with almost every client. But on the surface, it could be a bank, it could be a pharmaceutical company, it could be a construction company. Then I bring in what I'll call a project engineer who's a specialist in that particular product. Could be an accountant, could be an HR person. But what I do is I write above it all, managing the entire situation. And I manage the boundaries. That's that's actually, to keep things simple, I manage the boundaries. Right. I want to just go back to what you said a couple of minutes ago, because it's a fantastic soundbite. Things have gotten so bad that people are prepared to consider honesty. Like, I love that. I've heard you say it before, and it really struck me. So in a sense, that makes you sound like kind of the, the crisis management guy, the turnaround guy. Is is that, a, is that fair? Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, because I, I have had clients in crisis. In fact, a lot of my clients are in some form of crisis. Now, it might just be emotional, and they're trying to hide it from everybody. Or it could be they're losing market share rapidly, and they can't figure out why. But th there is some form of crisis that the old methods can't handle. Uh, in fact, typically what happens, and this is why I'm the third or the fifth consultant, most people in this considering honesty, they meet Oscar Wilde's definition of a zealot, uh, someone who when in doubt redoubles their efforts so that there is a confusion that sets in the dogs after them. It doesn't matter how much they drink. It doesn't matter how many extramarital affairs they have. It doesn't matter how much they golf. It doesn't matter how much they pray. It dogs after them. That confusion will not go away. And so when they're in that spot, it's like, okay, if I value my business enough, they need to value their business more than preserving their fears. And when they get to that point, I can work with them. I, I love this idea of emotional crisis and emotional problems because on a personal level, that rings very true. Obviously, we all have an inner emotional life. But if I think about work situations and the companies I've worked and the projects I've been involved in, that's not a language that typically gets used. You know, we talk about stakeholders. I am a stakeholder. Uh, I am the sponsor. I am the I am the owner. I am the manager. Whatever. Yeah. Or Manly. you know, maybe maybe not. But <laughs> they're they're a role. Yeah. It's you know, they're a picture on an org chart. They're a little clip art of a. You can get clip arts of stakeholders, can't you? People, little cartoons and in, in business outfits, and you know they have objectives and they have things they yes. need you to deliver, but. This idea that there's something emotional at the core of it and that there are fears that have to be addressed, that, that sounds yes. kind of quietly subversive in a way. It's ex Yes, and throw the word extremely in there too. Because it's cracking. The core problem is the person is trying to solve their problems while staying in isolation and again this is where i like carl jung because when you look at his person theory of personality 
we're all really good at some things and not others. Consequently, engaging in teamwork is critical for any problem of any sophistication. So what that means, and then the way we allow for that teamwork to occur is an element called self-doubt. And the problem is, at least here in the United States, what's promoted is machismo. And machismo is actually a lack of personality, a lack of character development. And in, so the dysfunctional behavior in machismo is I'm going to control, I'm going to dominate. And a per, sometimes, you know, a person can build a business. Uh, well, there's uh, one of my favorite ones is programmers. So you can get a programmer that's wicked smart with Python or I don't know, PHP or whatever, but they only go so far because they try to substitute excellence in programming for the fact they're very difficult to work with. They can't make room for other people. You know, the classic example when I teach communications is the immature programmers get mad at the superiors because they don't speak Python. And it's just like, are you serious? This is a joke, right? No, no, no. They really believe that all the executives in the company, they should let that programmer uh, control everything from their perspective. No responsibility, by the way. Senior executives keep all the responsibility. But that programmer wants everyone to speak Python. Okay, that's isolation. Uh, another example is accounting. Uh, you, you never want an accountant to run the company because it's like, if Thomas Edison were an accountant, we'd all be reading by bigger candles. Um, it, <laughs> you get my drift. So that what I, I'm subversive in that I walk around with this psychic hammer cracking the shells. But the truth of it is I can't crack it. They have to crack it from the inside. But what I do is I annoy them. And I annoy them based on their loss of money. Oh, keep on doing that. Lose another $5,000. Yeah, just keep on doing that. So there's a love-hate relationship because they know I'm speaking the truth. They're terrified over the loss of money. But God, can they get pissed off at me? It, it is fascinating, Gary, because most organizations by now, they have some, you know, they talk the talk about things like psychological safety and you have and and to some extent it's, it's genuine i mean it's it's easy to be cynical You're right but, you know yeah. people genuinely do try and look out for each other they make sure people are okay and you know there's a lot of this uh during the pandemic obviously your manager checks in with you one you know is there anything you need help with are you having a good day and um i'm not so cynical to think that those efforts were all cynical i think there's a recognition that happier people are more productive, get more stuff done. So it's, it's kind of win-win. But you that tends to stop at the boundaries of the individual. So I check on you to make sure you're okay. And when we've done that, we then go back to the actual business of mapping out our milestones and tracking the status and doing the program report and presenting the deck to the steering committee and yada, 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 until we hit a hit all our milestones on target and then we can all go home. So it's like you have the psychological world and the task-based world of project management. They're completely separate. And what you're doing is you're, you're breaking that down. Uh, yeah. I w and what I do is I shine a flashlight on their blind spots. 
because what employees do is what your children do. Children have no authority. And so children tune in to power and power is simply the ability to influence. Uh, when I teach leadership, I always tell people, you know, you can have all the sergeant stripes on your arm or the general stars or stuff like that. But the issue is at 2 a.m., the parents have all the authority, but the screaming baby has all the power. And uh, how does that occur? Well, we tend to hire into our blind spots. So what I do is I bring a flashlight to the blind spot. And and the deal that goes down, when I had a therapist as a partner, we had a faux boardroom. And we would do body, we would have executives come in and have their board meeting or whatever. And then we were in a separate booth. We had 12 cameras and we would just watch their body language. And once we knew the individuals, uh, knew them personally, having interviewed them, all we needed to know was what the topic of the meeting was, what they wanted to accomplish. And within three minutes, we could even turn the microphones off just by watching the body language. Within three minutes, we knew who was going to win and we knew what the results were going to be. And then they would talk for two or three hours and they'd come out and say, oh, God, this was so successful. And Sue and I would jot down what we thought at three minutes. And we didn't show each other. And we would give both slips of paper to the CEO or president or whatever. And you can knock them over with a feather because both slips of paper were identical. We never showed them to each other. And we did them in three minutes. And what that did was it humility came well with the ones that, with whom we were successful. Humility came down like a thunderbolt and employees felt protected. They, they the employees now glommed on the Sue and I because they saw, wow, they really are working, to be honest. They're not just a couple of consultants with their hand in our pocket like the other 20 consultants we've had before them. Yeah, so it's all so, about blind no, spots. Let me just break that down because you just said that you had a therapist, a psychotherapist as a business partner who would go in with you on projects that you were consulting yeah. on. I mean, that's... Yeah, we did that for almost four, almost four years. That was this was back in the nineties, by the way, late eighties. Well, uh, I've never 90s. heard of that being done on project consulting. Me neither. <laughs> How do you even hit on the idea of doing that? Through my own personal development, I crashed and burned, and um, uh, when I looked at my divorces, I have I've, this. I'm on my third marriage. You know, fine. I figured it out. I I always take the longest way around the longest barn. And um, when I decided to own my 50 percent of the marriages that went south, this sent me on a journey all the way back into childhood. I did hypnotherapy, age regressed to three and stuff like that. And so what happened was. The uh, the fragmentation of my life disappeared and the pieces all the function of fragmentation compartmentalization of one's life is to avoid the truth so what happened is by doing therapy plus i practiced buddhism and the two were, were hand in glove they worked very well together then it all started coming together and i realized i just have one existence you know i'm just gary uh, i'm not a 
I'm not a, a husband, a father, a brother, a son, and all that. No, I'm just Gary. And when that occurred, wow, it changed my business completely. Because now I started to see how shadow was running everything. Unless a person chooses to consciously be awake. And that's why I practice Buddhism. Because the whole focus of Buddhism is to be just be and connect with others. In fact, make it simpler, the function of Buddhism is just to relieve suffering. And all my clients suffer to some extent, so I work with them to relieve suffering. So when I looked at myself and decided just to be Gary wherever I went, wow, number one, what a relief, because I didn't have to keep a face on anymore. I used to be terrified that different people I told different things to would show up at the same party. It was like one of my com most common nightmares. You know? <laughs> and then I just, I just thought, you know what, we're all human. If you if you tell us a joke, we laugh, and if you stab us, we bleed. We're all human. And so I take a humanistic approach to business consulting. I don't know anybody else that does it. Because what happened, you know, you get a therapist, and then you get a CPA, and blah, blah, blah. Now we're back to compartmentalization, and it doesn't work. So what I decide, in fact, I almost, I was going to get a PhD in psychology, in practice, most people think I have a degree in psychology and that I am a therapist, and that's not the case. I decided I could do more on the outside of the therapist door than on the inside. There's plenty of people inside the therapist door. So my goal is to take what we're talking about to the world. That that's my mission well, in life. Thank you for sharing that. Obviously, quite a personal story, but it gives some insight into where you're coming from. Maybe if we come at it now from the other direction. Can you tell me a bit about your customers, sure. the kind of people that would call you in, the kind of situations they're facing? Oh, yeah. They, they either inherited the business or they started it with a set of skills. Uh, let's, let's go with the latter, the set of skills. And so what they did was they organized around their strengths. And they attract clients, you know, so they look for customers who have a problem where their strengths map into solving the problem and things go well, they can go extremely well. Uh, and, you know, they're growing, they're getting more employees, you know, at least several million dollars a year in revenue, more like 20 to 30 in revenue. So, they, you know, they're moving along pretty well, but the catch is, they exhaust their strengths because our strengths take us back to our weaknesses that we put in the closet and they've organized their business in a simplistic way, not a simple way, because the goal is to be simple. And as, when people are simplistic, what they do is they focus on parameters that tap into their strengths and they conveniently ignore anything that taps into their shadow, that taps into their weaknesses or their darkness. And so um, they hit a point where their strengths crap out. Their strengths are still their strengths. They're still really good at it. But what they've done is they've, they've grown to the edge of the abyss and they freeze. And the freezing shows by um, getting more aggressive with employees or doubling down and hiring more employees to do the same thing. All these avoidance mechanisms trying to make just the strengths work. Well, that's not the problem. 
I, did that make sense? Yeah, that the way makes I was just sense. Talking? So it's <laughs> like you, you go, you go as far as you can based on what initially propels you, and then that runs out of steam, and you, you're left looking for what takes you further. So are these startups? Are these small family businesses? What kind of profile are we talking about? Well, the oldest business I worked with was 105 years old. It was the fifth generation. The largest I worked with was half a billion. Uh, and the smallest I've worked with was a startup. So, see, what's unique about my approach is I work with human nature in the facet. It just diff- it shows in different facets. It. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because people will sit in a certain aspect of business, like the entrepreneurs, Mr. or Ms. Hotshot, you know, and these old fogies, oh, get them out of the way. And we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I haven't slept in two days, you know, and stuff like that. Well, they have their own version of the person that, well, daddy sent me to Princeton and then he sent me across the pond to Cambridge and um, my idea of a hard time is I can't get reservations at my favorite restaurant. And then suddenly they're in charge of the business. <laughs> that, that laugh is like um, laughing from the darkness, so to speak. You know, it just. Yeah. So, so in yeah. some way, these are people that they, they've been. They've been uh, thrown a curveball, or that they've been they've been dealt a hand. They don't know what to, what to do with. But but that could be anyone. Yes, right? I mean, you, you could be the biggest company in the world. Ah, you could be correct. you could be world beating Fortune one hundred, whatever. But who doesn't get curveballs, right? Who doesn't have uncertainty to deal with? Oh, absolutely. Uh... Mercedes buying Chrysler is a really good example. So here you have a world-class organization. And when I when I read this factoid I'm going to share with you, I knew it was doomed. Um, the own the pre, the CEO of Mercedes uh, divorced his wife, and the reason he got divorced was he said I needed to focus even more on this purchase of Chrysler. I knew right away it was doomed. No, no surprise. See, this is his whole thing. Like in three minutes, Sue and I would write on a piece of paper. Okay. When he said that about divorcing his wife, I, I didn't need any, by the way, I love, I used to be an auto mechanic. I love vehicles. So I was intrigued by the whole thing personally, but I didn't need any more information. All that was left was how bad is it going to flame out? And it flamed out pretty bad. Yeah. Everyone thinks they're in control until... One day they're not, right? Ah, yes. The magic word, control. Yeah, I, I it. Back to the at two a.m. The parents have all the authority, but the screaming baby has all the power. I encourage people to focus on power, but there's a catch. To genuinely get sustainable power, that's not based on fear you have to be vulnerable and this is the choke point for a lot of people i mean i've had clients you know like show me their their bank book and yes there's more zeros in your bank book than there is in mine we're not going to argue that 
but I have the courage to look at my problems and you don't. And that's actually what that's, you know, why did you retain me? You didn't retain me because I have a small bank account. You retained me because you can't find your ass with both hands and you don't want to admit to it. And it's scaring the daylights out of you. So it, anyway, it's, it's the same everywhere. The wrapper just shifts, big company, small company. And don't get me wrong, large multinational organizations I don't know. I can spell supply chain. And after that, I've exhausted my knowledge of supply chain. So there are hugely complex technical situations. But that's not the problem. There's plenty of technical people around. That That isn't the problem. I like what you said at the start. You said the first 90% of each engagement is technical and the second 90% is, I think you said, yeah, which, um, Political. which brings to mind the Yogi Berra quote. Where he says half of this work is uh, half of the game is ninety percent mental. So, do you find you really <laughs> have to go in and kind of prove yourself? You have to earn people's trust by proving that you know about, I don't know, Gantt charts or whatever it is. Oh, that's that's that. Yeah, very good question. It the it's it's establishing the engagements. It's the hardest part. My marketing is very difficult because I market in vulnerability. I, I market in learning how to swim in one's vulnerability and realize there's a power. If, if I can borrow from Christianity, it's the myth of the crucifixion. We die to the controlling self and we wake up to the engaging self that moves based on love, the discipline of love, the work of love, not falling in love, but the work of love. You know, the it's 4 a.m., the baby's throwing up on my shoulder, and I've got an 8 a.m. presentation. You know, that kind of work of love. Um, and I forgot. I was going to say something really genius, and I forgot. I'd like to see, see no, if it we're, comes we're talking about having to prove yourself <laughs> and how you, how, you, how you get the engagement. Oh, so, yes. So the way what happens is I do a combination of backdoor and crystal ball. I'm good at reading people. And by the way, anybody, I, I want to stay away from hubris. To the listener, you can learn how to do this, but the way you do it is you jump into your abyss and you learn more about yourself and then you become an active mirror. And once you're an active mirror, you'll get a handle on people fairly spontaneously. But the trick is, is to be honestly be yourself, emotional honesty, separate from moral honesty. Um, they're both important, but emotional honesty is a problem. So what will happen is we'll have dinner or. Um, well, most of my clients come from referrals, a golfing partner, a college classmate or whatever, because vulnerability is so key as to root cause with the problem, no one wants to admit to it. So what happens is I've worked with someone's golfing buddy and, and that, that prospective clients complaining to the person I know. And so while they're golfing, they want to say, Hey, here's Gary's phone number. Why don't you give him a call? Because I've worked with him and I think, I think he, I think you'll benefit from it. So that gets my foot in the door. But when I go to talk, when I talk with the individuals, they can put a smoke screen up and kind of like gorillas, they're puffing their chest out and stuff like that. 
and uh, and I will talk a bit the way we're talking. Like I, I would tell them things like, well, for every three units I go at your employees, I'm going to come back at you tenfold because you have the money, you have the power. So everything you don't like about your employees, you ask for it. You may have done it unconsciously, but you asked for it. You indulged yourself in a certain way or you avoided yourself in a certain way. And your employees are just a reflection of that. So that's the, one of the turnoff points. But the way I get around that is um, I will ask them questions that shock them because they think they're behind this firewall that I won't know what's going on. And for the listener, this is where being honest with yourself helps a lot because you learn how to pick up a person's vibration. And based on the vibration you pick up, you get a sense of what it is. So I will say things, you know, because they'll go, you know, they'll like the one real hard charger and he's going on and we're talking and it's like, well, sounds like you don't need me, but I have a question for you. Said, I said, would your wife agree with everything you just told me? And his food practically fell out of his mouth. Um, I do. Th I just, I just pay attention. I ask questions like that. And, and if, if they're going on and I'll just say, okay, so you're telling me you're never restless. Is that correct? And what I do is I just ask questions based on isolation, based on suffering. And this is where Buddhist practice comes into play. Suffering is based on isolation. We we want control. And the moment we want control, boop, we're, we're toast. So I just ask questions around connection and isolation. And that that backdoors them. And then the other thing is I'll ask, well, can you give me and usually there's this there has to be a money problem they can't solve. When I when I transitioned back in the 80s, uh, I, I wasn't getting anywhere. And what I realized is no matter what I do, I've got to bring it back to ROI, MBO, and things like that. So what I look for is a, a problem, a specific problem that they want to talk about, employees, production, I don't know, supply chain, whatever it is. And then I take the spiritual component and I tie it into its capitalistic world reflection okay when you isolate this way here's what seems to be happening is that correct and then they think i walk on water when i do that and at that point i have the engagement but it's very difficult to get to that point because the self-protection the surrounding themselves with yes men and yes women it it um <laughs> This is where the other consulting houses come into play to tell them what they want to hear. Yep. You know, they have their slide deck based on, oh, poor CEO, you know, you have it so hard. But meanwhile, you also are Schwarzeneggerian and you're also very powerful at the same time that you're weak and pitiful. I still haven't figured that one out. And oh, by the way, if you let us come in and straighten out your employees, wow, we're going to get back on track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's always a difference between what people want to hear and what they need to hear, but I well stated. I'm I'm endlessly fascinated, and I realise I'm using that word too much, but it's it's appropriate. I'm fascinated yeah. by the way that people manage to almost smuggle in those nuggets of what the audience actually needs to hear, rather than what they've been 
getting told their whole lives. And I'm thinking of, you know, plenty of big organizations I've worked, which, by the way, all all good organizations with uh, lots of smart people, very skilled, very competent, good at what they do, been in business a long time. And yet I am certain if someone were to go in there and start unpeeling or um, cracking the shells, like you said, with your psychic hammer, you would find so much stuff. Sure do. It, 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 in fact, there's a need to be careful in the pace because if the dysfunctional rules fall apart too much, production could be interfered with. So the the way I describe my business, it's changing the fan belt while the engine's running. And because there's a need to get away from the dysfunctional fan belt and put a functional fan belt on. And consequently, there's a need to be careful. For example, uh, I had a client, family-owned business, and there were two sons. And uh, the first mistake that was made was uh, the parents gave them stock as Christmas gifts. I, I still, this one to this, I've been doing this for 40 years. And this giving kids stock in the company is a gift. Oh my God, that's, I, we could do another podcast on that one. And what happened was one son had a bit of timidity, but a sense of what needs to be done. And the other one turned in the cock of the walk. Well, okay, I, you know, I've got 25% of the company now. And so he's going around, you know, reading people's job descriptions and telling them what to do and whatever. And so dad brought me in and uh, actually the one son, the one that was timid, a bit timid, but knowledgeable. He, he just needed more experience, really good guy. So when they brought me in, I was asked, what do we need to do? And I said, this is simple. I said, you have to buy out the sun filled with hubris. If you leave him in there, he's going to set up a confederation in the company. And then politically, your company's going to split down the middle. The, the more timid one was made president. And the one that had all the hubris was really PO'd because he thought, you know, oh, I'm cock of the walk. I should be the one because I'm bossy. Isn't that what bosses do? You know, they're bossy. And he couldn't take it. And so anyway, they said, what do you do? I said, you buy him out. And they said, what? He's my son. Oh, boy, I've gotten that one. He's my son. I know. Yeah. And then you allow enough time for mom to cry for about a month or two. And then what happens is the problems continue, and they're like a boil that just festers. And then finally what happened was, they they bought back the back the stock in a very generous move that the the hubris son moved to another city and eventually he came around and said you know i'm doing more of what i really want to do and they ended up patching things up over a period of about a year um oh i had another one where the the daughter had just gotten out of rehab and the, the father was one of three owners and when she she wasn't out of rehab more than, I don't know, a month, he gives her a job in the company and he gives her a car that's a level or two above the cars that the managers have. And um, there was trouble and I was asked what to do. And I said, you need to let her go. And <laughs> I ended up with 
we had a meeting where mom came in and she proceeded to dress me down telling telling me how I was tearing their family apart. And so when I said, I said, do you realize how frail your daughter is? Do you realize what you've done and how terrible that is? And they like lurched, like, what do you mean? She's just out of rehab. She doesn't even know who she is yet. That's why she went into rehab to admit, I don't know who I am. That's basically what rehab's about. And here you are putting her in a highly visible position, giving her money she knows she didn't earn. And you just sent her to rehab to learn to be honest. You put her in a dishonest situation. She's going to cave in under this. And um, the part, they ended up splitting. Two partners went in one. The other two partners went in another direction and I actually continued working with them. And and the one that, you know, was going to save his daughter and all that, he went in his direction. And the resulting company had a terrible time, lost a lot of business. This is, I, I'm speaking in a tone that I know the listener is saying, how can Gary talk this way? I talk this way because it's everywhere. I've been doing this for 40 years. This is normalcy in a lot of organizations. In fact, what I've come to realize is most successful organizations are at one of two points. They're in that stage where their strengths are still growing. They haven't reached the limits of their strengths to where they have to confront their, their weaknesses. Um, or they're kind of waiting to die because they won't, they won't be honest with themselves. It's like the Chrysler thing. They and oh, and everybody loves getting caught up in the technical analysis. That's and by the way, I I like being technical, don't get me wrong. And so it's usually one of those two states. They're either growing and they they'll they won't give me the time of day, or they stay blind and they're at risk of going out of business. And I have clients they've sold their company for that reason because the requirement for the emotional honesty was too much. And the owners felt too old, so it's easier just to sell the business. And then the employees have to figure out what to do. Wow. Okay, so you've been doing this for 40 years. You've clearly worked with all kinds of clients, all kinds of situations. Some of them may be quite messed up from what you've just described. Do you ever think what would be your dream gig if there were one thing that you could do, what would be the most fun or most satisfying somehow for you? Oh, yeah, client to listen. <laughs> <laughs> That's an easy one. Uh, and there, there, I, That'd be too easy, surely. Everything is simple. Well, everything is, by the way, I run my life based on everything is simple when you find the right vantage point. That is, that is the bedrock that I work from. Now, that right vantage point might say, I'm working in a house of mad monkeys. That, that simple vantage point does not mean the chaos is going to disappear. It just means I'll have clarity about the level of chaos and what's required to fix it. So I don't want the listener to think that I'm Pollyannish. And, and, and that's all I try to get clients to do is get to that spot where you can explain things in a simple way. You see the interconnectedness of, of all. You, you see the, the, the disintegration based on the lack of emotional honesty. That's the simple vantage point I work to get my clients to. And then from there, I do I do a boatload of risk. Man I've been teaching risk management for over 30 years. I do a ton of risk management and my specialty is wicked problems. And 
with wicked problems, that's where there's no root cause analysis. Um, because the, the problems are like a series of snakes. Each has the tail of one in the mouth of the other. And it's very circular. Uh, that's my sweet spot, wicked problems. Yeah, well, you'll never be out of business in that case. <laughs> right. So um <laughs> trying to think how, how to summarize this. It's been an absolutely fantastic discussion. And I know there's lots more you could say because we've been having these conversations for a little while now. Just being mindful yeah. of the audience, is there any advice that you would give based on all your learning? Any advice you would give to all people on the inside, maybe of some organizations who feel they would love things to change and they don't have what in some sense could be seen as the luxury of being the outsider going around with a hammer. What's Oh yeah, that that's a very good question. Yeah, I do have advice. Well, it's not my advice. It's the Dalai Lama's advice. But I'll, I'll appropriate it. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about this just the other day. No, uh, the, the Dalai Lama, was when he was being interviewed for his book, uh, The Art of Finding Happiness at Work, I'm big on words. So I love what I'm going to tell you because I find, <clears throat> excuse me, when I listen to people, and I pay attention to the linguistic maneuvering that occurs. I like combining that with the spiritual components. I, mm. It's just like one of my favorite things to do. And he's asked the question, what's a person do when they have a really sucky job? And the Dalai Lama gave some really good advice. The first thing he said was, don't kill yourself. Because if you're in a brutal environment, yes, you're getting a paycheck, but you do not have a responsibility for owning the consequences of the brutality. You do the best you can with what you have and take, minimize how much you have to do your work and then nurture yourself because your job is draining you. Your, your, your job is a vampire. It's just sucking all the spiritual blood out of you. So I said, where to place your focus is on your family, um, hobbies. And he says, structure your outside life in a disciplined way in the healthy word of discipline not cracking a whip but just i need to eat right i need to get some exercise i need to go to the movies i need to play with my kids things like that and his advice is do that to build up enough energy because it's going to get sucked out of you when you go back to work on monday and then the other thing and this is the language analysis if you and this is going to take a little time and i like to talk so bear with me <laughs> if if you look at the look for those of you that are trapped, because you might have sick parents, you might have a sick spouse or your kids, and you've got to stay in the job that's really difficult because financially you're trapped or operationally somehow you're trapped. So I'm not no Superman advice. Forget it. It's um, so what it gets down to is keep an awareness of the difference between humility and humiliation. First off, where do the words come from? The H-U-M the in humility and humiliation in the beginning. It comes from the word humus, which in Latin means earth. And this gets to connection. Because the whole idea of, you know, most of the listeners are familiar with the phrase Mother Earth. So where it comes from is if you're going to thrive, you have to, you have to be connected in a community 
and you have to do all those non-productive things that nurture. You've got to spend time taking care of yourself. You you can't be billable 100% of the time for those of you who are consultants. And and if you're being beaten to death in a consulting organization, if they're if they want you like over 90% billable, go find another job as fast as you can. Um, so humus is about the mycorrhiza and everything that's in the dirt in order to thrive your roots need the nurturance that's provided by the soil, which is influenced by the rest of the environment, other plants, animals, et cetera. So that the more you can spend time connecting with what's important to you in life, then you're going to get a bit of armor against that sucky job. Okay. So the beginning of both words is with humus. Now the difference is, and, and they both, there's two parts to the definition they both mean to go to a small place. In humility, I choose to go to a small place. In humiliation, I'm pushed to a small place. So that if your job is very difficult, you've been humiliated in some form or another. So what the Dalai Lama says, and God, the wisdom of this just blows me away. Going back to humus, you're only so big anyway. So just accept that and practice humility and decide to let go of um, your identity being challenged by the brutality of your job. And then this is where he says, but it takes energy to do that. And that's where sp stop the workaholic behavior, spend more time with self-care and do the minimum you can do to keep your job and you know look constructive in the situation. Uh, how's that sound? <laughs> that sounds fantastic, Gary. And I, yeah, I love the distinction between humility and humiliation. It's it's a good one. And I'm a fan of linguistics myself. Um, I wonder though, because this is almost describing an extreme situation. You know, you have a job that's practically abusive. You can't stand to bear in. You come out of it battered and bloodied. And I know full well there are many places like that. Um, I've been fortunate enough not to have worked in so many of those. I'm I'm thinking of places where, you know, people go in, they get a job, they get paid okay, the atmosphere is okay, nothing really terrible happens. But you just know that the thing isn't working quite right. You know, there's some, it feels like maybe there's some kind of an act going on or people are playing roles and it's not genuine or, you know, you're working on a project. To, to go back to your speciality and we pretend we know what we're doing, but you know that we don't really know what we're doing, but no one's really, no one feels comfortable saying that. No one wants to challenge the, the highest paid person's opinion. So this yeah. isn't the kind of life or death out and out brutality stuff. It's more the kind of almost a malaise of something not being quite right. And you know, You've got more skill and passion inside you, and so have lots of other people. You know it could be better, and you'd love to be part of making it better. But you don't know how. Oh, yeah, to borrow from Pink Floyd. Yeah, to borrow from Pink Floyd, uh, comfortably numb. Um, in that situation, that's a good one. <clears throat> and by the way, the brutality and all the, the intensity with which I was speaking before, that can be present in these comfortably numb jobs because with the word numb we start turning ourselves off 
to pretend we're not experiencing the destruction, to pretend our soul isn't being eaten. Um, so in those situations, though, where, you know, there isn't any, you know, there isn't like intense sexual harassment or something like that. And, you know, in the name of capitalism, this is just a determined company that's well run, you know, so, you know, and they meet their, you know, the stockholders love them and blah, 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 and all that stuff. One of the that kind of company. Okay, the thing to look at there is karma. Karma is the destructive habits we develop to stay in denial about taking ownership of our lives. The way the way karma comes about is um, when we're younger or at some, some point in our lives, we were in a situation where a person, place, or thing had power over us. And we were doing something healthy. We're exercising some aspect of our character, of our personality. And this dark force doesn't like it. And so what we do is, instead of staying true to ourselves, we develop a coping mechanism and we lie to ourselves so that we don't upset this force that's coming at us. When we're in a comfortably numb job, what's happening is we're sitting in our karma. We're keeping the job because fear, personal fear. And the reason is, and this is why I love Carl Jung in depth psychology. This I, I don't care for trait tests. I don't, I don't care for them at all. I care about depth psychology because the difference we make in our lives is to confront our own fears. So that that person in the comfortably numb job, they need to take their own inventory and ask, what did I do to get to this position? What, Where was I dishonest with myself? Because I didn't want to confront a fear I had. And so what I did was I engaged in a coping mechanism and whoop, here I am in this job. So the person in the comfortably numb job I wouldn't spend that much time looking at the job. Spend your time looking at yourself. That's that's the trick, if there is a trick. Gossiping about the boss, I mean, the boss isn't going to change. Uh, just ask yourself, what am I running away from within me that I'm in this job? Okay, now this this gets to the abyss. And so what, what happens, or as I like to tell clients... It's all those noises in your spiritual attic or spiritual cellar that are banging against the door trying to get out into the living room. And, <laughs> okay, if you want to feel better, you've got to pay attention to those fears and those, this is why uh, Jung called it shadow, that darkness within you. Now the, now, the trick to this is, is to realize every fear you have is something great about yourself they got deformed to please some dark force that pushed you into a coping mechanism. And this is what a lot of people miss. You know, that's like, I'm going to get out and I'm going to run 10 miles a day. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to bear down and oh, I'm going to get healthy and I'm going to do that. Yeah, bullshit. I mean, not that you shouldn't be disciplined. What you want to do is you want to, you want to meet yourself. You want to risk looking through the fear. Because remember, you develop that fear that puts you in a suck. This is a real paradox. 
what got you in a sucky spot is you develop the fear to protect yourself. So that fear actually is a protective mechanism. And this is why it's so hard to recover us. I mean, you just feel like you're going crackers. And actually you are when you work on this. I can, I can tell you because I did. As you dismantle those fears, you're going to get to your true self. The problem is you've been convinced these fears are your soldiers that protect you from love life. These fears keep you in an isolation that's quote unquote safe, but it's barren. It's empty. You're not feeling connected and back to Pink Floyd, comfortably numb. So the paycheck may be nice and the house may be nice and, you know, fill in the blank however you want. But everything you're looking at that you don't like about your job, that's just a reflection of you. Unless, of course, there could be a tsunami in the workplace where, um, Nobody needs buggy whips anymore. So you're working for a buggy whip manufacturer and that job goes away. I'm not talking about that where the markets change. It's just the product niche that you're in is going to be there for a while, but it's just your job feels like it sucks. Well, the issue is it's time to be honest with yourself that it doesn't have anything to do with your boss. doesn't have anything to do with your coworkers. It has only to do with are you? Do you have the courage to confront your fears? And your fears fight back. This is karma. You know, they say karma is a bitch. Those protective mechanisms, there's actually, I'm actually doing a series of videos on karma right now, so I'm quite familiar with this. Be gentle. That's what I was looking for. Be gentle. Be firm, but be gentle. Don't do that. I'm going to bear down and blah, blah, blah. No, be disciplined, but... Allow yourself some mistakes because it took you years to get to this point. So it's going to take years right. to get out of it. I love this, Gary, because it's common now to talk about bringing your whole self to work. But what I hear you saying is people need to do the work to find the whole self, first of all, before they can bring that into the workplace. Very well okay. stated. Very well so stated. I think we're going to need to wrap up now to spare our listeners. but. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. And oh, you mean you don't want to do part two, and then you'll just edit it somewhere? And we can. <laughs> yeah, we, we we could we could record a whole series and then uh, cut into episodes. But no, no, um, right. It's been great, Gary. Thank you very much. Um, if people want to check out your website, where should they look? Um, ctrchg.com. It's Center for Managing Change. If you put in Center for Managing Change, I believe my site will pop up. And then there's a support button. And then send me, uh, I believe it's support. I'm embarrassed. I can't remember what it was. But you'll find it. It's there in the header. And then send me an email. And um, in the title, just put Jake's podcast. And then I'll know it's it's about this. And I'll be glad to connect with you. It's, uh, you know, we all hang together, as Ben Franklin said at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, when some of the gentlemen were becoming afraid, their fears were getting the best of them. He said, gentlemen, we either all hang together or we hang separately. So, yeah, if you want to hang hang together on this, sure. Yeah. Sounds good. Gary Monty from the Center for Managing Change. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed this. <laughs>